I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to conclude Paul's magisterial chapter, often considered his greatest work, maybe even some of the greatest literature ever written. We're going to conclude our series through Romans 8, that final triumphant ending under the heading, All Loves Excelling, as we just sang. All loves excelling from Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? And who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and should we not end with hallelujah as we read such a beautiful portion of Scripture. Well, my most dear friends, I distinctly remember one summer afternoon many years ago, someone sharing with me about a particular health trial they were going through, and that this dear brother believed that it was God's retribution, it was God's anger for a certain sin he had committed. Have you ever had a thought like that? Maybe a death of a loved one? You have a business that fails? A broken relationship? And we begin to ask, is this God's vengeance? Is this God's wrath for something I have done. You see, it's a common Christian feeling, and maybe some of you here this morning have come to church with the sneaking suspicion that God's patience for you might be wearing thin. We can come to church and we can sing a hymn like we just sang, and we can affirm intellectually that yes, God does in fact love the world, but we wonder deep down in our own hearts, can God really love a sinner like me? And sometimes even Christians can fall into the fatal temptation. We say, yes, God loves me, but not when I'm sinning. Then He hates me, or at least mildly resents us? These are common questions, common feelings that Christians have today. But did we not just sing, love divine, all loves excelling, 
Joy of heaven to earth come down. Jesus, thou, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. What we confess in that hymn is that there is a great difference between the love that exists in the heart of Christ and the love that exists in our hearts. That if we search our hearts this morning, we know that our love tends to ebb and flow. We can be inflamed with love in one moment and then cold the next. You should have seen me last week when the Blue Jays made the playoffs and then were swept out of the playoffs. And one moment I am enthralled and the next I'm frustrated and cold. But this is the sense in which Christ's love excels all. Look into the heart of Christ this morning. There is no ebb and flow in His heart. In the heart of Christ, there is no coming up short or going too far. As John Bunyan says, Christ may as well cease to be than cease to love perfectly. For love is essential to His being. God is love. And if Christ is God, then it must necessarily be that Christ is love. I think these verses here are really the summit and the climax of Romans 8. Because here Paul reveals how God feels about sinners in Christ. Here Paul reveals how God feels about you and about me. That's why Paul begins, look at verse 31 with the question, what shall we say to these things? What is the conclusion, he's asking, from the whole book of Romans thus far? What shall we conclude then that we are justified by faith, Romans 4? What is the conclusion that it's apart from works, Romans 5? That we that Christ became a servant so that we could be servants, Romans 6, that we're freed from the law, Romans 7, that there's no condemnation, Romans 8, that you've been adopted into God's family and there's a promise of future glory even in your sufferings. What shall we say? It all culminates here. That there is no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once someone put it to me like this, Christian, there is nothing you can do to make Christ love you less. And there is nothing you can do to make Christ love you more. A perfect, unchanging love. Of course, as we've gone through the book of Romans, we know that there will be trials. We know that there will be dark providences. We know that there may even be chastisements, as the book of Hebrews tells us. But we need to know this morning that the heart of God behind it all is a heart of love. That's our theme for our time together this morning. I want to draw it to your attention. Despite challenging circumstances, Christians are more than conquerors in Christ's love. Despite challenging circumstances, 
Christians are more than conquerors in Christ's love. I want to show you this in two similar points this morning. No one can separate us from God's love. And then no thing, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Look first with me at no one can separate us from God's love. Paul opens this section in Romans 8 with seven questions in seven verses. And Paul is not asking these questions to learn something that he doesn't already know. He's not trying to ascertain some information here. Nor are they multiple choice questions. These are what we would call rhetorical questions. And you should view them more as statements of facts, specifically about persons. Notice the first question. Who can be against us? And I want to show you, for ease of understanding, three persons who cannot separate you from the love of God. I think the first person Paul is talking about in in, uh, verse 31 is specifically wicked people. Paul begins, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this very question supposes that there will be opposition against Christians in this life. Remember, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you are not of this world, so the world hates you. The Christian in this life should expect nothing less than opposition from this world. And Paul gives us really some startling insight into what those Christians in Rome were experiencing at that time. If you look at verse 35, tribulation, distress, and famines referring to hardship and trouble, persecution, nakedness, danger, and and sword refers to the evil people's oppression of the church. Everywhere the ancient church would have looked, they would have seen opposition. Opposition in their government. Opposition in their homes. Their workplaces. Maybe even opposition in their churches. I want you to notice here that Paul doesn't skirt around this idea. We will have enemies in this life. The Christian Gospel is not one of health, wealth, and happiness. No, he says there are evil people who hate Christ There are evil people who hate the church and there will be evil people who even hate you. And most obviously, the church in Rome was faced with the sword. Verse 35. Remember that it's in Rome that Caesar's fire is going to burn the hottest. Church history tells us that in the city of Rome, there would be more Christian blood shed than any other city. Even Paul himself will give his blood in the city of Rome. Church history again tells us that countless Christians were crucified in Rome, skewered on spires, fed to wild animals. Surely they fulfilled, verse 36, regarded as sheep for the slaughter. 
But that's not the only persecution they faced. Remember, persecution doesn't just refer to the shedding of blood, but Christians, Paul tells us, should expect rivals at work. We should expect cranky neighbors, godless parents and friends. The Bible teaches us the whole world is against us. All of Satan's force, all of his wisdom, all of his malice, all of his skill, and Paul's point here is all of his minions are against you, dear Christian. But did you know that the greatest comfort God gives to His people in the Bible is that the promise that He will be with them. He never promises to remove the trial. He never promises to take all oppression from us. The greatest promise God affords is that I am with you. Abraham, after he rescues, his, uh, rescues Lot from the wicked kings, he is filled with fear and trembling that the kings of the people he just defeated would come and wipe him out. And God says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He doesn't ask what Abraham's trouble is. He doesn't remove the oppression, but He assures him with His presence. After Abraham dies and Isaac is by himself the only patriarch, God says to Isaac, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Fear not, I am with you. Isaac, if God is for you, who can be against you? When Jeremiah was called at the young age to be a prophet, God told him, the people will oppose you. They will fight against you. But fear not, I am with you. Jeremiah, if God is for you, who can be against you? And this blessed assurance was given to us when Jesus ascended into heaven and He blessed His people and He says, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Christian, if God is for you, who can be against you? The whole Bible asserts this one truth. No one on human earth is stronger than your God. No president. No king. No sultan. No terrorist. No Hamas. No wicked teacher. No godless parent can stand up to Yahweh. He is with you. This is the greatest comfort that God can give His Christians. Come hell or high water. Come evil humans. Come Satan. God Himself is with you and He will never forsake you. Now this is an incredibly profound point Paul is making. God Himself is for you. You. You know why this is so profound? Because God in the Bible says, I am against sinners. Remember, God said to Assyria and Babylon, Nehemiah 2, Jeremiah 50, I am against you. He even said to Israel and their wickedness and their false religion, He said to them, Jeremiah 21, Ezekiel 13, I am against you. But now Paul is saying in Romans 8 that in Christ, in light of justification, God is saying, I am for you. 
Christian, in your failures, God is for you. Whatever you go through in this life, whether it be miscarriage or cancer, your greatest sorrow and your greatest joy, your greatest heartbreak, your greatest success, God is for you. So what's the answer of verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's implied. No one. No one is against you. The sovereign God can superintend and work all things for your good. And He promises to do so. By way of reminder, look at verse 28. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. And so even if the greatest evil thing happens to you, He will work it for your good. What's the worst thing that can happen? I'm serious. What's the worst thing that could happen this morning? Say somebody comes into this room and takes us all out. God says it will work for your good. That if we shed our blood on this ground as martyrs, it will simply serve to usher us into the presence of God. Our eyes may close a final time here on earth, but it will open again in heaven to see His face. Death separates us from many things. Death separates us from our families. Death separates us from our church. It separates us from our business. But Paul's assurance here is that death will never separate you from God. See, that's the second person here. Evil people cannot separate you from the love of God, but neither does God Himself stand in your way. What an incredible truth. Notice with me as well, I know I'm spending a lot of time on verse 31, but Paul begins in that question, if God is for us, and he's not meaning to convey uncertainty here. You know, you could actually translate this from the Greek as since God is for us. Or because God is for us. There's nothing hypothetical about it. That in the cross, God's feeling for you is as solid as a rock. That's the rock that is higher than I. No one can successfully oppose us or thwart God's eternal plan for us in Christ. No enemy or persecutor. No demon or devil. Not even God Himself will stand in your way. Even if this entire world be against you, even if you should be strapped to the stake like these people in Rome may be, even if you were burned at the stake, thrown to lions and bears, Paul is saying, when God is for you, no one is against you. Now something needs to be said here. God is for us, but it doesn't mean that we will always feel like God is for us. I am not standing up here promising you millions of dollars and Lamborghinis. 
but that until the last day, when we close our eyes that final time here on earth, we will never be moved from His everlasting favor. You will always be the object of His love and care. And see, that's really the second question that Paul is drawing our attention to. Look at verse 32. It's one of provision. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? It's a question of provision. If our salvation in heaven is secure, well, what about our life on earth? Being saved doesn't put food on the table. And remember, this isn't just a theoretical question. We know that there are many people in this world who can't get a job because they're Christians. They're not Muslims or Hindus. There are many people in this world who do not have access to food or money because of loving Jesus Christ. How will you get by? But Paul is arguing what we call the from the greater to the lesser. If He gave you His most prized possession, His Son upon the cross, we can be assured that He will provide day by day. Think about it like this. If I gave you a million dollars and then a week later you knock on my door and say, by the way, can I borrow a pair of socks? I'll probably give you the pair of socks. If a father pays for his daughter's tuition, will he not buy her some pencils and paper? If a mother births a child, will she not kiss its skinned knee? If a friend sticks with you during the failures and the financial ruin and the divorce, will they not stick by you in the good times? In Christ, God Himself will not stand in your way and block you from heaven. No, He will orchestrate all things to get you to heaven. And that on that last day, we can say with the hymn writer and the psalmist, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. Notice, not all that I want. Not all that I would have liked to have had. There may be hungry nights. There may be jealousy over what other people have. God doesn't promise us riches. But until that day we see His face, He will provide everything we need. That's His promise. That's His promise. So evil people will not separate you from the love of God. God Himself will not separate you from His love. Well, there's one third character that Paul wants to bring to our attention. And some of you might be saying, well, Satan is pretty powerful. That's the third character. Is he strong enough to pull me out of God's hand? And you remember in Revelation 12, it says that Satan is that accuser. We learn in Job 1 and 2 that Satan and his demons stand before God's throne day and night accusing the church. And you see that in these last two questions, that language of accusation. Who shall bring a charge? And then the next verse, who is to condemn? Charge and condemn are legal terminology. But one speaks of the future. Who will? Future. 
who shall bring charge. See, one day we'll all stand before the Lord and Satan will say of you and me, well, what about their language? What about her lust? What about his anger? Surely you can't allow them into your presence, Lord, because of all their sins. But God is the judge. He is the one with the gavel. And He credits to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. No one can bring a charge. But notice the second question. Who is? That's present tense. One speaking of the future, this is speaking of the present. But now we're really in trouble, aren't we? See, I don't know about you, but if you were to go through my high school classmates and ask them to dig up some dirt on me, you could find some. There are lots of people I have sinned against. Lots of people who have seen me sin. But Paul says, even still, there's no condemnation. Not because we're perfect. The idea here is that there is no one who can bring something so damning. There is no one who can bring something so heinous that God will change His mind about your justification. There is nothing that the believer can do to overthrow the blood of Christ. We will not be prosecuted. Satan is overruled not because I am perfect, but because of who Christ is for me. Look what Paul says. Because He died for us. Because He was raised for us. Because He sits triumphantly at God's right hand for us and is interceding for us. If if someone were to take you to court right now, you'd want the best lawyer, right? Well, this lawyer has never lost a case. He's never failed. And he stands day by day, Paul says, moment by moment, pleading, praying his death on your behalf. You are not condemned in the future, and you're not condemned now. Now, Satan knows this and will sometimes bring those accusations to us personally, not just to God so as to make our life a misery. And we may not be condemned by God, but we condemn ourselves. Christian, you need to preach to yourself the cross. And when Satan says, you're not worthy of heaven, Satan may even say, you're not worthy of baptism, not worthy of the promises. God loves other people, but He can't love you. You need to be reminded. He died. He's raised. He's at the right hand praying for me. See, there are many who stand between us and the love of God. There's a world who hates us. There's Satan himself who wants nothing more 
than our death. Even God in His righteous judgment. But yet Paul triumphantly says, in the cross, Christ has overcome them all. There is no one who can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But secondly, there's no thing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. See, Paul will end Romans 8 with that triumphant call that God has had victory over all people and He has had victory over all things. There are no humans who are stronger than God. No human can take us from God's hand. God has not grown weary of you. He will forever remain for you. And Satan's accusations fall flat due to the work of Christ, but there is still one weak point in the argument. There's still one chink in the armor. Us. Look again at verse 26. When Paul describes us as weakness, we are weak. We are not strong in faith. See, as Christians, we know that God is powerful and good. But many of us worry can we separate ourselves from God's love? Paul's going to talk about circumstances in these next few verses. Life is hard. God is always for us. But are we always for God? Can extreme circumstances destroy our faith and cause us to sever our relationship with the Lord? See, notice here in these verses, these last few verses, how Paul moves from the subject of persons um, moves from persons to circumstances. And again, he uses seven realities to show us the worst case scenario. Paul mentions tribulation in the Greek, thalipsis, which literally means a squeezing, a pressing, outward difficulty and rejection. That's pressure from the outside world. Then distress actually refers to internal pressure. This is a compound word in the Greek of narrow in space. It's when the outside world puts pressure on you, but it produces within you anxiety and fear and dread and panic. We are pressed on all sides, outside and from within, but Paul says it gets worse. Persecution, referring to abuse. And not only do Christians sometimes have to endure physical suffering, mental anguish, but then we have to refer to endure physical abuse. And the rest flow out of this idea. Famine, when you're, you and your family are hungry because you love Jesus. Nakedness, you're in rags because you love Jesus. Danger, you're living in peril, constantly looking over your shoulder for the sake of Christ. And for many Christians, even today, they hear the rattling of the sword. I've been privileged my whole life to live in North America. But even I have asked the question, would my faith stand strong in persecution? That's the worst case scenario. 
martyred for your faith. Paul quotes Psalm 44 in verse 36 to show that this is the experience of many Christians in the past. It was the experience of many Christians then in Rome, or at least would be. And it's still the experience of many people today. Will we be faithful? Will it turn us away from Christ? Away from God? Well, John MacArthur showed me a verse that I think really helps put this passage into light. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 6, where we see that many Christians, in fact, endured persecution. Peter is writing this epistle actually to encourage people in their persecution. First Peter 1, verse 6. In their persecution, he writes, the Apostle Peter, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, grieved by various trials, again, speaking of persecution, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And then he says this, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Even though they're in the worst case scenario, they're experiencing the persecution, the tribulation, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the sword. Peter says they love Him. How do they love Him in the trial? How do they love Him in the hunger? How do they love Him in the sleeplessness, in the physical and the mental suffering, even unto death? How do you hold on to Christ? People are more than conquerors. Not because they're the illustrious Christians who live above it all. Who resist every temptation and never falter. The people who are more than conquerors, look with me at verse 37, are those who love Christ because He first loved them. Verse 37 does not describe your love for Christ. It doesn't describe your holding on to Him, white knuckles in the trial. Verse 37 says that our tether to heaven, our anchor in the storm, is that Christ loves you. He loves with an everlasting love. A love that will never be changed. And so dear Christian, there is no circumstance, Paul says, that can break His love either. No circumstance that can shatter that anchor in heaven circumstances may shatter us. We may be broken by them. We may fall apart. Sickness, death, miscarriage, financial ruin can make us say, Lord, I can't hold on to You anymore. And our faith can feel puny and weak. Paul says when you are broken, you are still just as loved. And you are just as cared for. 
And when we see God that final time on that last day, we will see that it was not He who held on to me, or I who held on to Him, excuse me, but it was He who held on to me. It is the love that secures us in the circumstance. In fact, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer. In the Greek, it's kind of a funny translation, it literally would be super victory. Hyper victory. That on the last day, you didn't just squeak by, by the skin of your teeth, you have overwhelmingly conquered all your trials in the love of Christ. Even the worst scenario are only victories in Christ. And so this morning we come to the final verse of Paul's magisterial chapter. And he concludes with these words, For I am sure. It's a settled assurance for Paul. This is the grand conclusion of everything Paul has said thus far in the book of Romans, that neither death nor life, meaning everything that happens from the moment you open your eyes, from the moment you close them. Neither angels nor rulers, that's the heavenly beings, kings and presidents, nor things present nor things to come, that's your present reality and your future, nor height nor depth, that's the highest heaven to the depths of hell, nor anything else in creation, that means everything in between, none of it will separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus the Lord. The glories of this life will not finally seduce those who have no condemnation in Christ. The terrors of death will not finally sway those who have no separation. The pressures, the frustrations of the future will not destroy them. Nothing else, even all hell, can change the everlasting love of God for you. How important this is to commemorate on a day when we celebrate the sacrament of baptism. We confessed that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And here this is that promise enumerated not only to Rose and Joe and Faith and Graham and all of our children, but it is a promise enumerated to you and to me. That for those in whom there is no condemnation, there will never be separation. There is no one, there is no thing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not wicked people, not Satan, not God will stand against you. And even in the worst of circumstances and in the best of circumstances, you are the object of God's love and care no matter what comes to you. But before we conclude, Notice with me that this promise is not universal. This promise is not given carte blanche to every human who's ever existed on the earth. Paul is very careful to say that this promise is given to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the Christian's promise. And so I must ask, are you a Christian today? Do you desire the truth of this promise for your life as well? 
then come this morning to the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins and put your trust in the One whom the Father gave for sinners like you and like me. There's no greater time than the present. There's no greater time than this very moment. Turn from your sin. Turn from the world. Turn to the One who died and was raised. Who makes intercession so that there is both no condemnation and no separation for the objects of His loving care. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks this Lord's Day morning that we are able to celebrate that though Your church of old went through many challenging things and Your church even today has many difficult circumstances, we are more than conquerors in Christ who loved us. And we thank You, Lord, that no one, no matter how wicked or powerful they may be, can separate us from God's love. And we thank You that no thing in this world can separate us from Your love. Thank You that we are the victors in Christ. We pray, Lord, for those who have not yet put their hope and trust in You. Work in their hearts by the power of Your Spirit to bring them true joy, life everlasting in Christ who died for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.